Today we're going to be wrapping up a series called uh, uh, Breathing Room. And uh, really through the course of this month, we've unpacked a lot of the how of margin. Because we've all kind of noticed that in the course of our life, that one of the things that seems to be consistent is things get crazier. That the pace of life, the schedule of life, the rhythms of life, that there's just this a lot more going out than there is coming in. And how do we navigate and how do we move through life that in those moments where you're like, oh my goodness, I can't get to that meeting and I'm missing my kid's baseball game and I need to call my mom and I need to do this and all of that anxiety and stress and being stuck in traffic and all of that pressing in on side of you that sometimes you want to cry out even if it's not necessarily verbally, there has to be a better way. And that for some of us, maybe you've gotten there before. Maybe that was even this week that you're just like, oh my goodness, there is not enough time in my day to satisfy all the demands that's on me. And yet when we have, over the course of this month, looked at the Bible in different portions of what God's desires are for us, we see a God who says in Psalm 23, I want to lead you to a place of peace. That, that what he was demonstrating to us wasn't this beautiful psalm meant to be read in hospitals or in funerals or through difficult times. It was meant to be a picture of what life can be as we go through all the various struggles and seasons of life. And then we talked about the how of refueling, that emotional energy kind of flows out of us. And even in Psalm 23, we see this picture of a God who, who leads the sheep beside still waters and green pastures, places to refresh and refuel them, and that we have to have those weekly rhythm, rhythms and that even pivoting to realize that life itself has seasons and rhythms. That for, for you, maybe if you're single, that there is a specific uniqueness to this season in your life that you will never have again. And then you start to date someone. Um, I, I like to joke with my wife, I used to sleep. And then we started dating. And for about 13 years now, like I haven't slept because her, like, she doesn't require as much sleep. So I stay up later because of it. And I'm just like, I've been tired for 13 years. It's been glorious. But like when I was single, I slept more. And, um, but every single season, and now as like a, a father of a preschooler, like that's a whole different season. And some of you are getting ready to step into a role of empty nest where for almost two decades, your life has been kind of driven and controlled by the rhythms of others. And now it's just you two again. And you're like, oh, we like each other. This used to be nice. But there's this new season. You have to learn how to transition and process that season of life. But in the midst of all of the discussion over the course of this month, one of the things that you probably started to notice in all the, the practicality of the how of margin is there was this kind of iceberg happening where a bulk of the significance of it was underneath the surface. And you were bumping up against this that in the midst of, hey, here's what we need to add to our life, and here's what we need to do, and here's what this breathing room looks like, and here's what it can feel like to have that breathing room, that some of you probably started to feel the very logical implications of the yes leads to less. And that if I say no to some things, it means I have to let them go. That you've probably started to feel that. But if I need to create breathing room and my life is completely overwhelmed, then that means there needs to be less in my life. And that means things have to be cut and let go or diminished. And for some of us, let's just be real. You're looking at all the things that you have and you say, there's nothing to let go of. 
this is my family, this is how I feed my family, this is how I don't stab my family because I need to sleep and I need to be refueled. And you're looking at it all, but underneath all of this is this, I think, heavy weight that when we say yes, we also are, we're also saying no to a lot of things. And that this series, undergirding all of this series, is about this one tension that we're going to address today of what is the best yes in your life. What are the best yeses you can say? I mean, because when we say yes, we implicitly say no. Yesterday, I celebrated our 11th wedding anniversary, right? And it's, you know, it's a glorious day. Yes, thank you. I mean, it really is. I mean, it was, it was really cool. But that day, right, I know that one day I'm going to say yes now, if I'd embodied the fullness of that, that would have meant I would have gotten up that morning, I'd have gone to the coffee shop, the girl walks in, I say, nope, nope, oh, hey, nope, nope, because that one yes to Jenny meant about no to three billion other women on planet Earth, right? I mean, my one yes to her was no to about 3.5 billion other women. And just, I mean, through the course of that day, I'd be like, nope, girl, mm-mm. About to be taken, right? Just kind of rolling through. (laughs) Because when we say yes to something, we're also saying no. And so how do we know what's the best yes to say yes to? Because if we're going to really genuinely construct breathing room in our life, then how do we know what to let go of? How do we know what to carve out so that there can be space for peace? And what to remove so that our pace can put us in a place of peace. I'm going to give you a disclaimer that so much of this, even in me unpacking over the next 20, 25 minutes, um, has been the byproduct of a 13-year journey um, with the teachings and, uh, of a guy named Andy Stanley, who's a pastor, kind of hero of mine. And I remember in grad school, right before I get, got married, reading a book called Choosing the Cheat. It was a short book. But man, that book, I think, installed an internal GPS in me that has forever contributed to a lot of protection in my life and my family's life. That while in the course of those 11 years, I have been the one who's made a lot of stupid decisions, not my wife, it's protected us from far more damaging decisions that could have happened. Because you start to notice around 10 years of being married that other relationships aren't as, like not everyone is still in that same place they were when they just started. Right? And that I'm grateful that so much of what we've been able to, to experience together as a couple, I believe came out of what God did through that book when I was in grad school, right before I got married. So if you like anything I say today, you're probably going to really want to like, like him from what he saw in the Bible. If you don't like anything I say today, you probably don't like him also. So direct all your attention, unless it's really positive to me. Because um, where I'd want to start is this, this tension's not new. This tension is not something that we discovered with email, smartphones, um, traffic. This isn't something that we discovered. This idea of how do we know what to let go of, what's the best yes, is something that people for thousands of years have wrestled with it. And, uh, and there's a young man who, while he lived 2,500 years ago, almost 20,000 miles away, I think he steps into a storyline that on the surface may not seem like it has much to do with our current struggle of knowing what to let go of so that we can have breathing room. But I think you will find along with me today as we press into it that there's actually two filters 
that this guy uses in the course of his circumstances that directly transfers to our life. And that gives us insight and gives us a filter to know how and what to let go. Because when we say yes, we recognize that means there will be less of something else. And so um, if you have the Encounter Church app, I encourage you to click on sermon notes. Um, the passage of Scripture I'm going to be working through today is there. Um, if not, it's going to be on the screen behind me. But let me give you an introduction because some of you have maybe, um, you, this is, you've never heard of this guy. And so I want to give you an understanding of who he is in the letter. The Bible is not one book. It's a collection of books that have been put together. Um, it is comprises the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is what would be known as the Jewish Bible. And because Christianity is um, uh, the belief that the promises of Judaism have been fulfilled in Jesus. And so this idea, the Old Testament is the Jewish Bible and the New Testament is, the, is really the description of Jesus, who he was, how those promises were fulfilled, and then the, the storyline of the early church coming out of that. And so for Christians, the Old Testament and the New Testament are very much connected one is a promise note, and the other one is a description of that promise note coming to fruition. And in the midst of that Old Testament, there is a prophet, a, a man who was specifically gifted by God to see things in the future and to understand things in the present that most people naturally did not see or understand. There was a guy named Daniel. And Daniel's kind of seen as a hero in the Jewish faith and in the Jewish Old Testament because of the level of insights that he had because of the challenges that he lived in, but really the character of who he was. Because as a young guy in his early teenage years, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, they come and they siege his city and his country. In the course of this military campaign that the Babylonians are leading underneath the King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and his friends are kidnapped, which means his mom and his dad are probably murdered in front of him. But he's young enough that the Babylonian army sees him as potentially safe and not a threat. So he's taken back, travels hundreds if not thousands of miles over the course of weeks and months, and he arrives in a city with a language that he's never heard, with writing that he's never read, in grief, and his name and his life and his heritage has been wiped away. And he's part of this refugee camp that comes in to this city called Babylon. And in the midst of that, there's a sorting process happening because the Babylonians were brilliant conquerors. They wouldn't just defeat an enemy. They would destroy the enemy's heritage and legacy, and they would remake the enemy and their image. It, the, the best equivalent would be, hypothetically, if China decided to invade America, for example next year. And in the midst of invading America, th this massive war happens and the um, United States loses. Um, all the adults are killed. Kids are kept alive. The brightest and the most gifted children are, are kind of shuffled over here. And the rest of them are turned into servants and slaves. But the ones that looked the best, seemed the brightest, had nobility, royalty, the ones that seemed to have a good pedigree, those kids were just tucked over here when they were taught Chinese. They were only listening to Chinese music. They learned Chinese history. They were never exposed to any more English the rest of their life. They became distinctly Chinese. That's the best picture of how the Babylonians conquered. They made the brightest Jews Babylonian. And so Daniel's one of these kids. He comes in, and he's chosen. 
which means he has three years to learn the multiple languages that undergird the Babylonian society, to learn what is considered to be one of the most difficult languages in writing that has ever existed that the Babylonians used for their official record keeping. And Daniel's thrust into it. And one of the things that happens in the midst of that is Daniel's presented with this challenge. And we're going to pick up in around verse 6. And um, well, actually, let me just start with verse, yeah, I'll just start with verse 6. So you'll kind of understand a little bit of backdrop. I, I ran through a lot of history. Um, among those who were chosen were some from Judea, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So what you have is these four guys who were picked out of this group. And then it says the chief official gave them new names. The name Daniel gets changed to Belteshazzar, which might be a demotion, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Right? I mean, so here's this like unpack, this name changing. The reason the name change is Daniel, actually his name is literally tied to God, the Jewish God's name. And the Babylonians have a whole different set of religious systems, so they change all these kids' names to reflect the Babylonian gods. And if you had time and you wanted to dig into that, you would see every one of their names has a Babylonian God name tag to it now. And God's name's been stripped. And it sees, you see that these guys are kind of name changed. They're in this new thing. And well, what you find is in verse 5 that the king assigns them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And this is the point where things get weird. Because in verse 8, all of a sudden, Daniel... It says, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself that way. So all of this backstop, all this backdrop in history is to give you this understanding of what happens in this moment. Because Daniel steps into this moment where the tension of yes means no happens. Now, on the surface, you're like, guys just being served food. I don't get it. Why is, why is the food the big deal? And it's because the Babylonians' belief system, so what they would do is the Babylonians would sacrifice food and drink to their gods. So you'd bring the best meats, you would bring the best fruits, you would bring the best vegetables, you would bring the best of everything, and you would bring it to the Babylonian gods. That was like your, your act of devotion, and that was your religious service back then. And you say, well, that's a little strange. I, that, that doesn't make sense. I lived in Thailand um, over the course of a summer um, between my junior and sophomore year, um, uh, junior and senior year. And uh, one of the things that I noticed while living in Thailand is I would walk by little statues of idols, and there were food and drink placed at the bottom of these statues. Because in Buddhism, that's one of the ways that you can sacrifice to Buddha and the different idols of them, is you can put food there. So this is still happening today in other parts of the world. So the king would then come along and he would take the best food, the best vegetables, the best drink. He would bring all of those and that would serve as the basis for the menu. And so for Daniel, this was not about eating really well. This was about devotion to God. That's why he uses this word in verse 8 that says he could not defile himself. That on the surface, it wasn't just that he was having Ruth, Chris, or Brazilian steakhouse thrust in front of him. And he says, no, I would rather have the, the steamed vegetables from the garden. Right? Because 
I mean, if I'm just reading this text without the understanding, I'm like, man, why would you ever turn down? I mean, did you know you can have a hangover from meat? If you go to a Brazilian steakhouse, you can eat so much good meat that you wake up the next morning with a hangover from meat. I'm like, why are you turning that down? And it's because he understood in that day to eat that food was to be devoted to that God. And he says, I can't do this. I can't eat that meal because if I eat that meal, it'll violate my core priorities. You see, here's the first thing. The first filter that we have to have in order, in order to practice and to carve out the space for breathing rooms, we have to know what our priorities are. And Daniel, in this moment, this small moment, reveals his priorities. It's, I think it's actually, it's, it's the small moments for most of us, right? It's when you're told, hey, this, there's a meeting this weekend. This could, be, this could be it. This may break through. You may get a promotion out of this. And you say, well, this is my anniversary weekend. We were going out of town. And it's that small moment, this little small moment, where what's at stake is not a promotion. What's at stake is not an anniversary trip. What's at stake, what's happening on the inside, is you saying, what is really my priority? What's my priority? And that's why there's a tension point that happens in those moments. Uh, when I was, uh, shortly after Ella was born, there was this kind of moment for me where, you know, I've talked about before, where we, we weren't sure if we were going to, like, have her for too long because there was a lot of medical tests that came back that put her, like, life, even her first year of life, into question. And kind of in the midst of that, this song, um, I Won't Give Up, Jason Mraz kind of came in, and, uh, I mean, I'd start singing this song to her, and, um, and I would sing it to her so often that even after we kind of cleared this really scary medical kind of ordeal and we everything's okay and we're this song became kind of my anthem for her. and I remember one night I was like I'd just gotten out of a bathtub and I was like you know drying her off and putting her like little PJs on and I, I was just singing over I was like and I won't give up on us even if the skies get rough I'm giving you all my love I'm still looking. She went, ah, uh, uh. <laughs> And I was like, when you need space. And she started singing it with me. And so this kind of became this like new ritual. We would sing it together. And it was like this bo- broken baby English version of Jason Mraz that was so much better than the original. The, the like, I, I won't give up. And it, I don't know exactly what she said, but it was adorable. And we would sing it together and we would... And I, I would love it. I mean, it really was like this thing I look to every single day. Because for me, I wanted it to be this promise and this intention. I wanted her to know, Daddy will never give up on you. And, and when she was little, I think the challenge for me is I could fall into the trap of believing me singing my intentions over her were enough. But now with a four-year-old, I realize it is not my intentions that she judges. It's my action. It is, she, she with brilliant clarity does what we all do. In today's times, we, marry, we measure devotion by our daytimer and where we are and what we do. And my daughter, as a four-year-old, understands that. 
And it's like, Daddy, the words of that song only matter and mean something if your schedule reflects it. If you carve out space for me. Because I can leave and I can work long hours and I can travel and I can push hard and the intentions of that song can come on. I can listen to it on my iPad in an airplane and tear up. But if I am never with her, she will never know that song is real. She will never, ever believe that song unless she sees it in my schedule. And I've had those moments as a father. I've had those moments as a husband and as a son and as a friend where my priorities come to the forefront of this moment where I have to choose what I'm going to lose. And, and Daniel's in this place, and Daniel says, you know what? I, I think I'm going to choose God, which means I'm going to lose this food, which means there could be consequences. And he makes this heavy decision, but in his wisdom, he goes to this guy and he says, hey, can we make a deal? What's... what's What's your concerns with my suggestion? And the guy said, I don't want to get my head chopped off. And Daniel, in his wisdom, says, okay, what your concern is, is not about what I'm eating. It's about how I'm performing and how I look. And Daniel proposes this brilliant plan. He says, let's give it 10 days and let me eat what I want to eat. And let's see what happens at the end of those 10 days. Because this is a three-year experiment, surely. Whatever happens in the next 10 days can be reversed over the course of three years. And the guy says, okay, let's see. And I think that because Daniel had this clarity of his priorities, he could use wisdom and tact to figure out a plan and not just merely react to it. He, he understood what his priorities were, and it gave him, the, I think, the courage and the clarity to figure out how to formulate a plan to even act on it. But Daniel understood, I have to stand on my priorities because that's what matters. And you can say, well, okay, help me understand because are you saying I should quit my job? No, I'm not saying you quit your job. I'm saying that when it comes to reality in life, we have to know our priorities and we have to have wrestled through that. And one of the clarifying questions this is one of the things I said. There was one thing in that book that I read in grad school, this one line that, that's forever haunted me. I mean, I read that book for this one sentence, and it was simply this. Um, in the midst of a, a story he's telling, he, he writes this one line. He said, you know, our priorities are rooted in those roles that are unique to you, not the roles that someone else can do. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm going to repeat it because, I mean, like for me, I've been working through that book and it's like, that's, that's profound. That what, what matters most are those roles and relationships that are unique to you, not the roles and relationships of things that anyone else can do. Like, I will only, I will only be the husband to Jenny. I'll only be the father to Ella. I'll only be my mom's son, my friend's friend. Like, those are completely unique to me. And Daniel, that was what Daniel understood. He was like, my relationship with God is completely unique. No one can fill in for me in my relationship with God. No one can tap on the shoulder and say, hey, Daniel, I'll be you for a little bit. I got this. You go do whatever you want to do. I'll... It's not possible. No one can step in and say, hey, I wanna... hey can, I, can I be your, your daughter's dad? And be like, heck no. Right? 
It's, it's just not possible. But you know what? I believe that God's going to use this church to do incredible things in this community. And, 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 and my prayer, and I see 50 years from now, like what God's going to do through this church and how it's not just going to be this community, it's this region, and how lives with people with languages around the world will be impacted because we really do believe love does and that a church should be known for what they do for, not what they take from. Like, I believe lives will be transformed by Encounter Church. And one day, people will look back on this moment and they will stand in awe of what God has done in the midst of us. I mean, I know there are incredible days ahead of us as a church, but I also know there will be a day where I will not be the pastor. Someone else will be leading this church and being part of what God's doing in this greater Boston area. But you know what? On that day, I'll still be Ella's dad. I'll still be Jenny's husband. I'll still be my mom's son. I'll still be my friend's friend. Because that rolls. That, those roles, they're unique to me. They stand out. Someone else can do this job. There are far better communicators in America than me. But no one can communicate with the word daddy to Ella like me. And I think when you have processed through that and, and you've got this filter applied and you answer these three questions, I just want to give you a couple of questions that you just write down it's like, what are the roles that are unique to you? And I don't mean that trite. I don't mean that light. I think sometimes it helps just to sit back and say, okay, what's absolutely unique to me? What is it that only I can do that no one else can do? And to process what that means. And then what do you want your priorities to be? Do you care more about your character or your corner office? And look, I'm not making a judgment statement. I'm just making an observation. Which one's more important to you? You have to know because your priorities will put you in a place where you have to make a decision. And like Daniel, if that's your priority, then you have to make a plan and a decision that takes you in alignment with that. So if it's a corner office, then you know what you're going to prioritize over the course of your life. If it's your character, then it means when you're posed with a, this opportunity to lie but to seal a deal that would make your career or tell the truth and know that you might lose a client, that if character is your priority, then you're going to tell the truth. And say, I'm, no, you know what? I know this is going to hurt. But I'm going to tell the truth. Because that's my priority. Because it's in those small moments that test those priorities that we have to win. And, and Daniel's doing that for us. And then here's the gut-wrenching question. I, I say use this as a disclaimer straight up. But if you're feeling really bold, ask your friends and family, what do you think my priorities are? But be aware that they're not going to measure your priorities by your intentions because that's what you and I do. I always have the best intentions. In fact, I've never sat in a, with a, a marriage couple who are processing divorce and heard the statement, oh, I had the worst intentions for our relationship. Wanted to destroy it from day one. So glad we finally got here. I want to thank a few series of people, right? No one ever gets, no one ever steps into our offices and say, I had the worst intentions for my relationship. We all have the best intentions. And our friends and our family do not judge us by our intentions. They judge us by our action. My, my daughter will not judge my commitment to her by the song I sing, but the schedule that I keep with her. And that's just the reality. But once you've clarified those priorities and that you've kind of implemented this plan of I know what I'm going to do in those moments before they happen. 
then reality is that you still need courage to stay through. And this is the second filter in hell when I close it. Is that we see in the story of Daniel, how Daniel goes to the king. How he goes to the king's servant. He says, look, let's make this deal. And the king's servant says, all right, I'll give you 10 days. And it says in verse 15, at the, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And then it says that these four young men gave God, that these, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning that by the, verse 18, you see that, that by the end, that they get presented to the king and the king, after talking with them, finds that there's no one equal in all the land to them. And he promotes them. And it says in every matter in verse 20 of wisdom and understanding about which the, queen, the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the other magi- magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Because the word magician kind of is rooted in this context and it was more of an advisor than the card switching, sawing, bunny out of the hat kind of magician, right? But here's verse 21, and this is the critical component. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, it's possible to read through this entire chapter and miss that verse 21 is an incredibly significant statement. Because Daniel goes in to, to captivity and is placed in front of King Nebuchadnezzar, who's ruling over the Babylonian Empire, when he's just a young boy in his teenage years. King Cyrus will lead and will control the empire when Daniel is in his 80s. And what you have in verse 21 is a statement of chapter 1 being a picture of the entirety of Daniel's life. See, the Babylonians would be conquered. You would have the Assyrians, the Persians, the Medes. You would have not just kings come and go. You would have kingdoms come and go through the book of Daniel. And the writer of the book of Daniel says, I want to I give you an understanding for why this why this book matters. I want to give you an understanding for every story that follows after Daniel chapter 1. And it's like, the best way I can do that is give you a story from the early years of his life. Because that early years of Daniel's life was a pattern for how Daniel would act the rest of his life. That whenever he was put into a position where his priorities were compromised, he would always choose his priorities, even if the outcome was bad. Even if the outcome meant being thrown into a lion's den even if it meant being arrested or beaten or persecuted, even for his friends if it meant being thrown into a fiery furnace to kill them for what would have been seen as treason. And what they do with Daniel chapter 1 is give us one story that gives us Daniel's M.O., his pattern of operation that was rooted in his understanding that his priorities were to be the guiding point of his life. And the reason that Daniel could have the courage to stay true to that regardless of circumstances. Because here's the thing, what I'm not saying to us today is that by always sticking to our priorities, it always works out. That is not what happens. When you read the book of Daniel, sometimes Daniel and his friends choose their priorities and they are tried, like, tried in a court of law and then are put in circumstances where they might be killed for standing firm to their priorities. What I'm saying to you is that Daniel was okay with the outcome because he knew his priorities. Because Daniel understand that while over the course of those decades he served many kings, there was only one king he absolutely showed devotion to. And that was the king of the universe. The king he would write about, who would 
be the one who would cause nations and empires to rise and fall. The one who was like orchestrating this entire thing called history. That king whose kingdom never ends was the one that Daniel showed his devotion to. Daniel had this commitment to that king. And I think what Daniel had, the second filter was perspective. Because sometimes in those challenging moments of making a decision, the only thing that will carry you and I, the only thing that will fuel the courage that will that give us the strength to overcome the grief that we know we will lose a promotion because of our decision is having the perspective of the entirety of life in our, in our mind. This past week I was listening to a TED Talk and this beautiful visual of this came. It's called the Life Calendar. What it does is it's a visual representation and you'll see it up on the screen. It's, um, it's a ton of squares, but each one of those squares represents one week in the life of a 90-year-old. So what you see on this calendar right here is for every single square, every little tiny box, is one week for an entire nine decades of living. Now, two weeks ago, I celebrated my birthday, and I want to show you my life, my life calendar. And that, that's actually to the week. That's exactly the number of weeks I've lived in my life. And like you, when you saw it, as a 35-year-old, I was like, this thing's going fast. Which means if you're in your 60s, you've got another two-thirds. And it's just boxes shaded in, but what you have when you have that moment is perspective. And as a pastor, I'm constantly reminded of perspective because here's what I get. I, this little bottom box down here, this one, I, I get to be in places with people when they're in that box. That Jason and I have had plenty of moments where we walk into someone's room, whether it's in their bedroom with hospice or whether in a hospital room, and, and they're taking their last breaths. And you know what you always have in that last box? Perspective. But I've seen enough of those people in those boxes to know that sometimes when you get to that box and you finally get perspective, it's too late. Because I've never been in the room with someone dying and they say, will you, will you have my accountant print off my bank account? I just, just want to look at the numbers one more time. <laughs> hey, hey can, can, you, can you pull up that picture of our vacation house on the Cape? I just, I just want to see the view of the ocean through that Airbnb page one more time. Hey, well... Will you park my Tesla down there? I can see it through my window. I just need it right there. I just want to look at the sun bouncing off the red paint. No one. Never. In fact, there's only two things. There are only two things that happen in those moments. They want to know, am I okay with everyone and those unique roles that I had in my life? Am I right with those people who I love the most? Is everything okay? And then they want to know, am I okay with the one I'm about to meet? Because it's, it's incredible. Like, I, I mean, we will have series where we'll process through why are you a Christian? Why do you believe what you believe? What about this? What about science? What all these things? Like, and we'll unpack all that in the future. But I'm telling you, in those final moments, even um, Stalin, as recorded by his daughter, Stalin was, an, it was a stark atheist, a militant atheist who was... Re- responsible for tens of millions of people's death. 
At least over 10 million people said. And then one of his final acts as an atheist was he, he leaned up in the bed and he shook his fist at God before he collapsed. I'm telling you, it's really hard to be an atheist and to be confident in that last box. Because all of a sudden, the uncertainty of what's about to happen next hits you in the face. And it's okay. You believe what you believe. What I'm saying is that what Daniel gives for us is two filters. The, the, the filter of knowing your priorities and then a filter of perspective to say, it's worth dealing with it now. Do not wait to that last box to ask those two questions. Come to clarity now on those questions so that the rest of the boxes that you have in front of you that are waiting to be filled in can be filled in in a way that when you get to the end, you're okay with. Because the thing that I've seen is that when we get to the end of our lives, our regrets are often never rooted in what we did. It's always rooted in what we didn't do. And it's always tied to a who. Not a what, not a thing, not a where. To a who, to someone. And in the course of this series, what I wanted to give us space for was to deal with the weightiness of this reality that, man, life, we get one shot. We get one chance. And God's love and care for us is strong enough that He desires that it would be lived with priorities in place and the perspective in mind of what's this for. So that when we create our breathing room, we find it's the best breath we can take. And that when we build our breathing room, we're constructing something that over the course of our life will continue to fill us with life. Because we're making space for what matters most in life.